Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we're very happy to be joined by a special guest. He is the co-hitting coach of the Baltimore Orioles alongside Ryan Fuller. He was hired by the team prior to the 2022 season. He is Matt Pork Salty. Matt, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure to have you, and thank you for joining us. So we'll start um, with this, which was there was a lot of talk coming into this season about the arrangement of having two hitting coaches. Now that we're nearing the halfway point of the Major League season, is everything going according to plan? And are there ways that have been easier than expected and ways that have been harder than expected? I think it's gone excellent. I mean, I think my partner in in Ryan Fuller has been, you know, everything I could have imagined. Uh, We're pretty much on the same page on every aspect of the game. And uh, I think the, the biggest compliment that we have to each other is that we don't care who gets the credit or we don't, we're not looking for any specific title or anything. Uh, we just want to do the best that we can to help the players have success. And I think that's really led to a, a great relationship that we've started. Yeah. We talked to Ryan Fuller last year and he seemed like a really good guy. What, how much background did you have on him before you joined the Orioles? Oh, no, I've just known him from being uh, in the game and um, one of the coaches that, one of the hitting coaches now for the Red Sox, Peter uh, Peter Fatsy. He was the hitting coordinator for the Twins when I was there, and uh, he he knew Ryan from from UConn, um, so he had some good things to say about him uh, before we before we even met. But right when we started uh, our relationship, I could tell that we were going to get along well, and and things were going to be uh, you know it was going to be a good spot for me to come. Uh, going back to the the beginning of the year here, how tough was it for, for maybe you personally uh, with the shortened spring training, rush start to the season, as you're trying to adjust to this new organization and with a lot of new players in the major league roster as well? Uh, how were you able to adjust to that so quickly? Yeah, that was certainly a challenge. I mean, coming to a new organization and trying to develop those relationships and kind of making that all shortened into a into a shortened time coming off the lockout as well, where we didn't even have time to. Um, kind of develop things on the uh, on the phone or anything. Um, no, certainly a challenge, but I think we have a lot of really great guys, and the rest of the staff has helped a ton. Uh, so it's actually been, you know, a, a really good thing for me to do. Just as we start to get to know these guys, and I've been very impressed with the organization. We've heard a lot this year uh, about swing decisions and about that approach that you've implemented with the hitters, and it seems to be working throughout the whole organization, not just at the major league level. Have you been able to see improvement on that front as the season has gone on? Certainly. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, is one of our staples that we, that we continue to talk about with the guys is, you know, if we want to hit the ball hard, we want to do damage. If if we want to have success at the plate, you know, it starts with swinging at good pitches. So we're continuing to preach good swing decisions and guys have uh, done a great job working on that. A few of those guys in particular, Austin Hayes, Trey Mancini, Ramon Arias, Ryan Mountcastle, Santander, we've noticed that all of those guys have improved in at least two of these three categories in hard hit percentage, 
walk percentage and strikeout percentage. Um, all these numbers are trending in the right direction across the entire organization, really. Uh, what can that be attributed to? Well, I think part of it is these guys are really working hard. <laughs> they have made a commitment to be the best player that they can be. And, you know, as coaches, we're here to give them everything that they need in order to help them achieve, you know, whatever they want to do. And really it's up to the, up to the player on how much they want to put into it. And those guys have made a strong commitment and, and we're just here helping out as best we can. Jorge Mateo is uh, electric in the field and on the bases. Um, and he has some pop at the plate. There's times when he's had a better eye than others, but how can he make improvements when he's up to bat to cement himself as a regular on a contending team rather than a role player? Yeah. Or he's uh, you're exactly right. Watching him play defense and uh, watching him play the game in general is, is exciting. The explosiveness and speed and athleticism is, is off the charts. Uh, offensively, he's been really working hard and I think he's going to continue to improve as he gets more experience in recognizing pitches and uh, kind of understanding how the pitcher's trying to attack him and what he needs to do to combat that. But I'll tell you what, he's been working really hard and saw some good things last series. Hopefully continue that. Cedric Mullins, um, you know, when you look at his numbers, obviously down from his sensational 2021 campaign, yet he has a similar hard hit rate, strikeout rate, and average exit velocity as compared to last year. Walk rate and barrel rate are down and launch angle is up. Uh, what does he have to do to get his production back on track? I think Sed's already made some some really good adjustments uh, offensively, and the swing has is, is in a really good spot right now. We saw some some more hard hit balls this uh, past series, and uh, you know he's he's a hard worker. Gets in the cage, does what he needs to do, and puts himself in position at the plate to have success. And you know it's it's fun watching him once he starts getting going, and uh, I think it's coming soon. Top uh, prospect. Adley Rutschman uh, got off to a slow start, but much like Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Witt Jr. is looking much more like the player that had so much success in the minor leagues after an adjustment period. What has it been like working with him? Yeah, he's a fun guy to work with for sure. You know, we have a lot of talent within this organization at the major league level, at the minor league level, and um, getting to work with Adley has been, has been great. It's been impressive to watch him make the the adjustments necessary at the major league level to uh, kind of turn things around after a slow start, and you know it, it'll be uh, it'll be exciting to see um, him as we continue to progress throughout the season. It really seems like he never really wavers from that patient approach that he's shown going down his days in Del Marva watching him play, uh, and now in the big leagues, it, it, the approach at the plate just doesn't seem to change with Rutschman. Uh, is his approach really beyond his years at this point? I would say so, and, and that was something that we knew coming in. Um, that was that was exciting for us that, you know, yeah, he's he, he's probably going to struggle a little bit at the beginning. But we know that with him making good swing decisions and making and making solid contact uh, frequently that, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time before he makes the, those adjustments. And uh, now we're starting to see him have a little bit more success at the plate. When, you know, speaking of Rutschman being a top prospect, that's a minorly focused podcast is a great interest to us. But um, it's really great to see him have this much success at the major league level already. But. When he comes up and you know, kind of a lot, as a lot of people expect, even your top prospects are going to have that adjustment period to the major league game. Um, what are you, what are you and Ryan talking with him about uh, off the field when he's going through this adjustment period? Because you know we've heard, especially from your side of things, that being able to connect with these guys is a really important 
uh, part of the, the process with you. So what goes on behind the scenes with, with Rutschman during this time? Well, I think he has a really great mindset, and I think he understands, um, you know, that it wasn't he wasn't going to be able to come up here and just dominate as 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 much as he has in his previous experience. But I think it's just a matter of time, like we said before, he was going to uh, start breaking out. And you know, I think having uh, Ryan with a previous relationship with him and being able to establish, uh, you know, that through through the minor leagues. Uh, they get along really well, and, and he does a great job of understanding, you know, what he needs each day to to be prepared for that game. Have you been able to follow the minor league affiliates while you're certainly busy at the major league level? Because um, a lot of encouraging progress down there this year, in particular with some of the players that are close to you um, at AAA right now, it's Jordan Westberg, Kyle Stowers, and Gunnar Henderson. So how do you check in on the minor leagues? Yeah, we – me and Fuller have uh, constant communication with our, our minor league coordinators, our AAA hitting coach, uh, Cody Ashey, Anthony Villa, and, and Tim Gibbons. So we watch them all the time, and we, you know, it, it was great being able to connect with some of those guys in spring training, some of the early camps, and to kind of see uh, how they work and you know what what they're what they're uh, what they're good at and what they need to improve. And I, I tell you what, it was, it was impressive to see. Um, Stowers for for a, a series there and see how much he's improved even since spring training. So um, they're doing a great job with these kids, and uh, the kids are doing a great job of working their butt off on what they need to improve. Yeah, and speaking of Stowers, he did get that brief taste in the majors when the team traveled to Toronto. Despite only playing in two games over four days, what was he able to learn and take back with him to AAA to work on? Yeah, I think he, I think he learned about you know how difficult it is and. How when you step into that box and, and, and the guy's got good stuff, you know, you never really know what he's going to do to you. And uh, I think he's he understands what he needs to work on and he's hammering it out. They're doing, they're doing a great job with him um, in terms of the minor league hitting coaches and getting him to uh, the positions that he needs to be to have success at the plate. Um, I think it's I think it's it's impressive to see and very encouraging to see some progress from previous seasons in the areas that he's, that he's working on. And man, he's got some bat speed, he's got some length through the zone and he's going to be a fun one to watch. Yeah. It seems like with some other coaches and instructors and even players in the minor leagues that we've talked to this season, it, it really feels like an important part of the development process has been the creation of this culture of where it's, it's okay to fail. Uh, at a, a lot of times with these guys, but how does that translate to the major league game? When you're going out there and you got to face, you know, a Garrett Cole one night, and then you could end up facing, you know, like a Shane McClanahan the next night. Um, and it's every single day, every single night in the AL East division. How does that process translate to the major league level? Yeah, I think it translates to the major league level maybe even more because they're aware of how nasty these guys are. They've faced them before and they know I better get ready if I'm going to try to hit this thing. So when we're in the cage, the cage environment, pregame stuff, we're trying to challenge them as best we can. And they're they're looking for it because they know when when come game time and they step into that box, you know what they're going to see is is going to be pretty pretty good stuff. So um, we try to replicate that and make it even more challenging than the game if possible. Sometimes it's not as easy with some of the stuff that these guys are throwing, but. Uh, I think the players are doing an excellent job of challenging themselves in practice so that they're even more prepared when they step into the box. Speaking of those just nasty pitchers, it almost seems like pitching development has been 
maybe ahead of the hitting development a little bit for the last couple of years in terms of just baseball in general. But, um, you know, due to the you know, defensive nature of hitters kind of having to react to what pitchers are attacking them with, are we close to seeing an advancement on the hitter side with these machines that you guys are using in camps um, that can kind of simulate specific pitches and other methods? Certainly, I think so. I mean, we're always working to, to try to get these players as, as good as we can possibly make them and what new training um, tactics or machines or balls or, or whatever we can use to help these guys get better. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to continue to work and do research on the swing like always. And we're going to continue to do research on the other team, on the, on the pitchers, on their tendencies and, and how they're attacking each guy. Uh, I think that's going to give us the best chance to, to have success at the plate and continue these guys development and working hard to square the ball up. I think one of the biggest success stories so far in the major league season for the Orioles has been Austin Hayes. Um, you know, we've been following his career for years and it's always been, you know, if he can just stay healthy, if he can just get regular at bats and he could turn into a pretty good player. Yet it feels like he's maybe exceeding some of those early expectations with the year that he's having. And he's frankly a legitimate all-star contender right now. What kind of work has he put in to get better this season? he's put in some great work. It's been, it's been awesome to see. And he's a leader in that front. he's always asking for some mixed BP or some um, something that's going to be a little bit more challenging, something he knows he's going to face in the game. And with what these guys are throwing nowadays, coming close to 50% off speed, you know, in the training environment, we should probably see somewhere close to that. Uh, That's something that, that uh, Austin's done a really good job of, of being able to see some different shapes in the cage. Uh, That's, um, come game time in terms of making sure he's in the right spot to hit. Yeah, and it seems like just having the mindset of if you have a bad game, just forget it. Like last week, he struck out four times on Tuesday, hit for the cycle on Wednesday. <laughs> and it kind of goes into a guy like Ramon Urias, who he's been hitting the ball hard consistently all season long and just does not have the numbers to back up what he's been doing. How do you, how do you like tell those guys to just focus on what you're doing and the results will eventually come? Yeah, I mean that's what we can do. that's what we continue to preach is is about the process and with the long season, uh, you know that we have if we continue to put that work in every day and we continue to prep to uh, to focus on those important things of making hard contact, good swing decisions, and and making uh, contact in general, you know I think over the long haul of the season he'll start to get some of the back. We saw some of that with Trey early on. He was making a lot of hard contact, not getting some results. He's starting to trend back towards you know, uh, a little bit closer to uh, not as not as bad of luck as he did had uh, early on. And I think you'll see that with Ramon once he once he uh, gets start starts getting going again. So uh, it's always it's always frustrating as a player for sure when you're making hard contact and you and you can't seem to get the result. But um, as we continue to focus on that process of hey, you're doing the right things, just keep doing what you're doing, and and things are gonna uh, things are gonna turn around in, in terms of the results. Another guy, Anthony Santander, who, I mean, his walk rate has almost doubled. He's just, I know last spring training, he talked about his focus was on try to walk more, take more pitches, have better plate discipline, and didn't necessarily work out. But this year, it's it's been unbelievable. He's already crossed his career high in walks like a month ago. So what what's going on there? And he's still hitting for power, too. Yeah, Anthony is, is has done a great job. Uh, I'll tell you what, he prepares really, really well in terms of studying the opposing pitchers and, and what he thinks he's going to, what he thinks he's going to get, how they're going to try to attack him. 
Um, and I think he's become really patient at the plate and, and only swinging at pitches that he feels like he can drive and only pitches that he's on time for. Uh, so, and, and that's not an easy thing to do, um, with, especially with what these guys are throwing. It's not an easy thing to do. And, um, you know, with the, with the training that he's continued to work through, um, it's been, it's been impressive to watch that, that transformation and, um, great to see for sure. Ryan Mountcastle is a player that we've also kind of followed closely over the years. And it always strikes me when I watch him that it feels like very few people can square up on the baseball the way that he does. And he just hits the ball really hard. And for the second year in a row, he has come out of a slow start and emerged as one of the better hitters on this team. With that said, he's a young hitter. What are the things that he needs to work on and get better while at the same time continuing to build on the success that he's had? Yeah, I think, yeah, like you said, Mount, Mount Castle is a, is an extremely gifted hitter and watching him put the barrel on the ball, even just in batting practices is very fun to watch. Uh, but you know, with him, we're just continuing to preach on swing decisions. Um, he can he can hit just about any pitch, uh, but when he gets into troubles, when he chases a little bit too much out of the zone, and guys those breaking balls, um, you know, down and away. And I think the more that he continues to get that experience of understanding how guys are going to attack him, especially when he's feeling good, and um, understand where that ball needs to start for it to be a pitch that he can drive, and how he can how he can combat what they're trying to do to him. I think that's how he's going to continue to improve and progress through his career. And I, I tell you what, he could be a very, very good hitter in this league. He's already, he's already doing some, some impressive stuff, but I think, um, you know, it wouldn't be a shock for me to see his name up there with some of the best guys in the league. Well, exciting stuff for sure. Um, just maybe more so you personally, now that you're halfway through your first year with the Orioles, um, have you sat out, sat down and thought about, you know, what are, what are your goals for the rest of, of this season as we watch this year play out? And this team continues to exceed expectations kind of day in and day out. But from your point of view, from a hitting coach's point of view, what's the plan the rest of the year here? Uh, I mean, our, our goal is always to continue to help these players get better. Um, we want them to perform on a nightly basis for sure, but we also want that to continue to progress throughout the season, especially with the young the young players, but with all the players in general. Like we are talking about, Santander had some improvements, and we want to continue to help him improve in, in all the areas uh, that he needs to to be the best he can be. So I think the, the biggest goal is just every day we're trying to help these guys get better. One, we got to be prepared in what we're doing. Um, and also, like I said, we just have to make sure that we're trying to help these guys get better every single day. And and they've done an excellent job of doing that. It's going to be more challenging as the season goes on and start to get a little bit tired towards the end. Uh, but the more that we can preach to these guys, the importance of that preparation of their body and their mind and, and understanding how guys are going to attack them and what they, what to expect when they step into the box. I think it's where we're going to uh, continue to have that progression. Last question for me is, what is the clubhouse chemistry like? Because it just seems like such a fun group of guys in there that are having a good time and always battle back. I think the record is like, I can't remember exactly, but a fantastic record when they lose by five or more runs the next day, they come back and win more times than not. Uh, just what's the atmosphere like in there? Yeah, it's, it's been great. It's it's fun to have guys like uh, Chirinos and Odor and, and some of the other veterans to kind of keep things loose. Um, and they they know, you know, the, the challenges of the season and how, how it can be tough losing. But um, 
you know, I think they've found a, a great piece within our within our group to help have that mindset that it doesn't really matter what happened yesterday. Um, you know, we're coming here today to win the game. And I think especially over this last stretch, you know, like we, we feel like we can win any, every single time we come to the ballpark. And, you know, we just fell short a little bit the last game. Uh, but even then, you know, we're, we're down and, and we have no doubts that, that we can get into any any game. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's an exciting feeling to have in the clubhouse. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. And best of luck in Seattle and the rest of the way in the 2022 season. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we react to our discussion with Orioles hitting coach Matt Borksalty, which took place earlier today and is now available publicly on YouTube and will be part of our main podcast when that drops after tonight. In addition, we're going to discuss the promotions news headlined by Colton Kowser, Kobe Mayo, and Connor Norby going from Aberdeen to Bowie. And then we also have some listener questions we're going to get into and cover the strong performances of Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson at AAA Norfolk. That's on tonight's episode, but we'll start first with our interview with Orioles co-hitting coach Matt Borg-Salty. We pre-recorded that interview today, and we had a pretty wide-ranging discussion. Uh, talked not only about some of the individual players in the Orioles this year, but overall organizational philosophy and some of the work that he and Ryan Fuller as co-hitting coaches are putting in with the players at the major league level. So, Bob, what was kind of your takeaways from the interview? Yeah, I just I thought it was cool to just talk to a major league coach, which uh, might be a first for us. And uh, it's just cool to get some insight. He gave good, concise answers, which uh, made me a little worried that we didn't have enough questions asking. But we made it work. We we got a good twenty minutes out of that. Uh, but no fault of his own. It was good answers, and we just needed to come up with some more questions. But yeah, I think he's just as positive on the developments at the major league side of. Uh, the swing decision path that players are making individually and overall as a group. So, yeah, I think there's plenty to be excited about in uh, at the major league level for once, for the first time in quite a while. And, and he spoke to that pretty clearly. Yeah. I think the two things that I really liked from the, the piece there though, were without trying to give away too much there for people who haven't listened yet, but you know, that culture of in this whole system from top to bottom where it's okay to fail uh, and he seemed really excited when he was talking about that, uh, you know, the way they're able to interact with these players, specifically these hitters, uh, and let them know that, you know, they are going to fail, but where are they going to learn from that? Uh, and so it, it seemed like there's very, you know, the lines of communication are wide open in this organization, uh, no matter which area we're talking about. Uh, and the fact that I, I like in the very beginning, you know, when he said, you know, it, him and Ryan aren't in competition to see who gets the credit. They don't care who gets the credit. This is a true team effort uh, that they are working on up here. So I think just from it, like Bob said, it's really cool to talk to a major league coach. That's the first time we've gotten a major league guy on the show. And it you really get the sense that he's a down the earth guy. And you can see why, you know, he's able to connect with so many of these guys, even though he's 
I think he's he's younger than I am, which was <laughs> weird to think about. That's the uh, Baltimore Orioles co-hitting coach who's younger than me now. Um, he's what 31, 32, no MLB experience joining this brand new organization. And guys have really taken to him. I think he really called out, you know, like Anthony Santander as a guy who's really learned a lot under him. And that's uh it's really good to see. I think it speaks volumes to the kind of coaches, not just the major league level, but think of all these other guys that we've talked to in the minor league system as well. Um, the guys that the Orioles are bringing in, it's it's really cool to see play out. Yeah, we did get a chance to talk to Ryan Fuller when he was still at Double A Bowie last year, and you get the sense that their personalities probably work really well together. So, Nick, I would agree with you that that it didn't surprise me that he said it's not a competition. There isn't, you know, not trying to take credit, but it was good to hear him say that. Uh, we had that interview earlier today, and be part of the main episode, and it's available on YouTube now. So, after you finish watching this episode, you can go back and watch the full interview because. We've got a lot of big stuff to talk about tonight, and we'll start with the news that dropped Monday morning, which was that Connor Norby, Colton Cowser, and Kobe Mayo are making a jump from high A Aberdeen to double A Bowie. And these are three players that I think at the beginning of the year, if you had said who's likely to make that jump, we would have had them in there. Um, but the timing to some might have been a bit surprising, especially in the case of Norby, who has not been off the IL very long since getting hit in the face. Um couple months ago so but still nonetheless some interesting promotions here and I think that in their cases better performances were taking place than what the base stat line might have indicated at Aberdeen and turn it over to Nick because I know that he has some thoughts about that and that's that's it right there like I think it's very important to note with these promotions that when you look at the box scores if you just pull up whatever you use mlb.com fangraphs baseball reference whatever when you pull up those numbers and you're just looking at Colton Kalser's like season line or Kobe Mayo's season line, you aren't getting the full story there. Uh, and I think Kalser, Norby, and Mayo, obviously we talked about Kalser a little bit last week. Uh, and there have been a, lots of takes and opinions about Colton Kalser. Uh, Norby's really just flown under the radar, I think, completely this year, uh, even though he has, what, eight home runs and 40-something games this year. Uh, and then Kobe Mayo has, what, 13 home runs? He had his 13th home run yesterday. He's got the home runs, but, you know, the average, the strikeouts, and none of these are, are super standout with either of these guys, right? Um, not in a positive way, at least. But I think all three checked all the boxes that the organization wanted checked in Aberdeen. The data that's not publicly available that we're aware of is impressive. And I think now you get to see Kowser, Norby, and Mayo. This is their all three their first professional seasons because Mayo was 2020 draft pick, so no games for him that season. Uh, they're all in their first – full pro seasons and now they're in double a and Colton Kowser or sorry, Kobe Mayo, actually a, a fellow December baby. So uh, shout out to all the fellow December babies out there. He didn't turn 21 until December 10th. Uh, so another 20 year old in double a here. Um, yeah. I just think that, you know, the exit velos are fantastic with these guys. We hear that all the time. You see, Lost my train of thought there. I'm back. It, the organization is more worried about process. That's what I remember. The organization is more worried about process than results. And clearly, they've reached their development milestones in Aberdeen. And, you know, it might get ugly at times. But like I mentioned at the start with that interview uh, with Matt Borg-Schulte, the organization has created a culture where it's okay to fail. And guys are comfortable with that. And they know it's going to happen. But how do they learn from that? How do they grow from that? And so it's important for us as fans not to get stuck on the box scores and stat lines and really like trust what this organization is doing. These are some aggressive promotions uh, and they wouldn't do it if these guys weren't ready. Yeah, exactly. And if you're ever watching and be like, why isn't this person get promoted? They're 
hitting X number and hit this many home runs. And hey, why did this person get promoted? They're only hitting this. It's like the Orioles now are not just looking at the numbers that we can look at. They're looking at the underlying metrics. They're waiting for them to hurt, hit certain milestones and benchmarks. And that's what they're going off of, not the just results on the field. They're going off the the intangible development that has taken place. And these guys certainly deserve to be promoted. We we knew that this was coming, I feel like. I mean, these guys have been performing well, even despite maybe underperforming based on the metrics behind the scenes. But Kobe Mayo, it's so easy to forget. This kid is 20 years old all season long. He's so mature for his age. He just looks confident and comfortable at the plate, the way he plays the field. It's easy to, especially with Gunnar Henderson doing what he's doing, and he's just turning 21 here, I think, this week. Um, it's easy to forget that Kobe Mayo is basically a year younger than him and right on the same path or even ahead of path of where Gunnar Henderson was this time last year. So that's exciting. Colton Kowser, I feel like he's going to do really well getting out of the Ironbirds home stadium for whatever reason. It suppresses offense, suppresses power. I think now we'll really see if – the swing changes that have hypothetically been made with Colton Kowser have taken effect and see if his power numbers tick up there in Bowie. And Connor Norby, yeah, he's even under the radar when I was thinking about who to talk about first. Um, he's just goes out there. He's steady. He missed some time, but he's clearly got power. And I think, I don't know, just getting back up there with um, Cesar Prieto, the gang's going to get back together. And uh, I think we're going to see good things. Yeah, it's worth taking a, a deeper dive into all three players. And I'll start this discussion with Kowser, who I think, Bob, you hit the nail on the head. It's going to be easier to tell in Bowie if the swing changes that we've kind of heard that Kowser has made have an effect on his power. Because other than Kobe Mayo and Cesar Prieto when he was there, um, a lot of hitters don't necessarily hit a lot of home runs at Aberdeen. And that was true for Kyle Stowers last year when he was there for part of the season. So that Kowser, you know, leaves Aberdeen with four home runs to me is not terribly surprising and isn't really indicative of where he stands right now from a power perspective. I did want to point this out, which is that the month of June has been really good for Colton Kowser. 286 average and 856 OPS in 88 plate appearances across 20 games. So it's hard to look at Look at that and not think that he was settling in a bit. Um, and then, like Nick said, you know, some of the things that the Orioles were looking at behind the scenes probably told them that, you know, Kowser was having some bad luck. And that's something that I know has been out there. John Mioli wrote about it in his newsletter a while back about how Kowser had been hitting the ball hard um, and just not having a lot of luck. So this is not, I think this is a good time to make the move with Kowser and, see what he does against older competition. Yeah, speaking to the bad luck thing, I was at the game Sunday, and he hit two balls to the wall, one in left field, one in right field, that could have easily been gone maybe, or at least could have been extra base hits in another park, another day with different defensive alignment, what have you. But he stuck with it, and he ultimately did hit his 19th double. He only has four home runs, but he's got 19 doubles. It has to be up there as far as uh, organization leaders and doubles. So, He's Nick Marcakis, uh, <laughs> seemingly to me, that can play center field. I still think that uh, evaluation holds true so far. And a fresh start, you know, you go up to another level, you're you're back to square one as far as just your uh, your line, your O for O, 
and you can kind of take what you've learned and look at it as a kind of a fresh start. And I think for him, that could be good. So Kowser's 19 doubles is actually second to Jordan Westberg, who has 21 doubles. Um, yeah. That makes and, sense. <laughs> and Colton Kowser, an underrated part of Colton Kowser's game is the speed. The guy has 16 stolen bases. He's only been caught once. And yeah, maybe you can contribute a little bit of that to Aberdeen because Aberdeen has the turf. So, you know, it plays fast, right? Um, but he's still got 16, only three guys in the system. Richie Martin, Dante Williams, and Luis Valdez have more stolen bases. And Luis Valdez has more stolen bases than almost everybody in minor league baseball with 33 already. Uh, but yeah, it's that, that fact, you know, I know I'm sure a lot of people say like, well, he's only hitting, you know, 250 something. I think Norby's what in the two forties, Mayo's what two fifties, two sixties, Kowser's like in the two fifties. And you say, all right, well, bad luck, bad luck. Well, that's part of this whole, it's process over results, right? So if they're hitting the ball extremely hard, it's the same argument a lot of people had with Adley Rutschman at the major leagues, right? Rutschman wasn't getting the base hits, but you saw, we had the stat cast data there. You could see how hard he was hitting the ball where he's hitting the ball, you said those hits are going to drop eventually, and they've dropped. They're starting to drop right now for Adley Rushman at the major league level. And I think that's going to be the same case here. Um, maybe it could be that fresh start for a lot of these guys really unlock some things. They're in Bowie. They've got a new challenge in front of them. And I am stoked for Tuesday night to watch these guys in that Bowie because, you know, to be honest, that Bowie lineup was looking, looking like a Norfolk Tides lineup. <laughs> and so it's good to get some fresh star power on that roster. And I think that's going to be the must, the must watch game Tuesday night. Yeah. Even when uh, Bowie loses a little bit of luster, you don't have to wait long before the star power <laughs> arrives back in full force. Now with that rotation with Zach Peak and Drew Rahm for now, at least they might, they might be triple A bound too, but Noah destroyer, Noah Denoyer up there as well. And uh, now the, the lineup is, is going to, be up to par as well. I think with Mayo, the thing that just stands out to me is that the three of us have been, I think, fairly consistent in our assessment of Mayo. Although I think as we've gotten to see the kind of player he is, our opinions have been raised, been raised a little bit. But would you have thought a year ago this time we would be talking about Kobe Mayo going to Double A at 20 years old? No. And but I mean that's the case for all of these guys. Like I didn't think Creed Willems would be in Delmarva right now. Uh, I didn't think, certainly didn't think Mayo would be going to Double A right now. I didn't think Gunnar Henderson would be hitting what he's hitting in Triple A right now. <laughs> uh, so and that's just a, another sign that look when these guys meet those benchmarks, the Orioles aren't going to keep them around at their level. They're going to move them up uh, as soon as they're ready uh, and give them that new challenge, which is comforting to see, I think. And so. Yes. No, I didn't expect it. And that's not saying that I was down on those guys at all. I just thought Kobe Mayo this time last year is a 19 year old kid who didn't really get to play that much because of 2020. And then he started late last year because of the, the minor injury clearly, clearly didn't set him back too much. Yeah. Put it in perspective this time last year, the FCL was just getting started and Kobe Mayo hasn't, hadn't uh, made his professional debut yet. Isn't, isn't that right? It's about, I think Sounds the right, FCL, yeah. I know the FCL. And now he's in double A. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, after we saw what he was capable of at the end of last year and going into this off season, yeah, it was definitely in the realm of possibility that he, we didn't know if he was going to start at Aberdeen or back in Delmarva, but we figured Aberdeen was a good, good as spot as any. And, and he's performed as expected basically. So as can be expected for someone so young at that level. And uh, now we're here, but, a year ago this time? No, I didn't even know if he'd make it to Delmarva or Aberdeen by now. But uh, he's, he's killing it, and he deserves where he's at. Yeah, completely agree. And I'll touch on Norby now, who 
as I mentioned earlier, was hit by the face in a um, hit uh, hit in the face by a pitch back in May. He was out for about uh, three weeks or so before returning in late May. He's been out in the field since. Some of the numbers with Norby don't look great. Um, you know, right now, 237 average at Aberdeen, 736 OPS. But I don't think that that comes anywhere close to telling the full story because what we're seeing from Norby this year, I think even compared to last year, is he's hitting the ball really hard. And the one thing that we have been talking about for a while with Connor Norby is we know he can hit. We know he can make contact. We know that he knows the strike zone well. Um, it's just a matter of whether or not he's going to tap into that power uh, improvement that he showed at ECU last year before the draft. And I think so far he has done that. His home runs that he hit at Aberdeen this year were not cheap home runs at all. Uh, and he leaves high A with eight homers, which I think for that ballpark is a pretty good accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, to say the least. I mean, you're starting to see the Orioles – draft strategy of let's get guys that just hit the ball really hard and let's see if we can get them to, as we've seen with Westberg in that Mioli piece, pull the ball more, hit it in the air more, and then see what happens. And you see what's happening with Westberg right now. He's apparently leading the organization in doubles with 21, and he's got a bunch of home runs as well. I feel like Connor Norby's kind of a less defensive, defensively versatile version of Jordan Westberg at this point. He's just, he hits the ball hard. Uh, seems like the same kind of mentality to me. He seems like, you know, he's just a gamer, a competitor, just keeps his head down and, and goes about his business, but seems like he's got some leadership qualities as well. So, yeah, I think uh, I like that profile. Let's keep it going in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and the thing with Norby, too, like, I mean, didn't he lead you know, all of college baseball in base hits? I think his last year at ECU and the Orioles drafted him, and the the term you kept hearing in every scouting report you saw about Connor Norby, it was always hitterish. How hitterish he is! This guy's a hitter, uh, and so far, I think we have seen flashes of that. I know the average is down this year, but um, one thing that I'm shocked to see, and I'm not shocked anymore, but um, the organization's ability to pull more power from these guys has been really cool to see because I didn't see anywhere in any of these scouting reports before the or going into the draft or right after the draft when he became an Oriole you know with Westberg it was if he taps into more power he could become an everyday second baseman at the major league level Westberg has certainly tapped into that power mm-hmm. I didn't see that with Norby uh, but Norby like Zach mentioned yeah when you watch those games in Aberdeen when he connects on those home runs those are monster shots and like that's not an exaggeration at all they're off. He knows they're gone right off the bat, too, because he, he's got the stop and stare down. Um, he likes to flex his home runs, which boosts him up in, in my value there. But, uh, yeah, that's impressive. So to get more power out of that, out of that bat, which I think had like a 40, 40 grade power coming out of the draft uh, is impressive. And I'm just shocked to see because I actually looked at his splits, uh, his recent splits. And I think he was hitting like a buck 49 and striking out almost 50 percent of the time over the last two and a half weeks or so in Aberdeen. So I think maybe that shows you really like what kind of numbers the Orioles looking at. And I want those numbers so bad because you look at that and I don't think anyone would say, yeah, he deserves a promotion right now. But again, clearly the Orioles said, nope, you are ready to move up. And this isn't a filler spot. This is because he has nothing left to prove in their eyes at high A and he's ready for double A. Um, So as president of the Connor Norby fan club, um, welcome to double A Connor Norby. 
I just thought of something <laughs> that was great, but uh, I just thought of something as far as development goes, you're seeing, I feel like we've said, you know, Aberdeen pitching staff, amazing, right? They've done great. And they're kind of sticking around Aberdeen, maybe because it is a more pitcher friendly league ballpark and the hitters you're seeing, Hey, let's get them out of here and get them to Bowie where they can kind of see more results based on uh, what we're seeing behind the scenes. Maybe the philosophy is hitters. If they're hitting the benchmarks, we need, underlying numbers wise we'll get them up to buoy pitchers we can wait a little bit longer just because we can continue to work with them and develop them in a more comfortable environment i don't know just a thought yeah and there's cesar prito i think is kind of reversed to all of this but that popped in my mind but i think there's a question coming up from a listener about cesar prito later on that we can touch into but other than that yeah i think that's kind of the flow of what we've been seeing so far with these guys I'll say this too before we move on because we're actually going to be talking about Gunnar Henderson in a moment. This does remind me of when Henderson was promoted from Aberdeen to Bowie last year. It's an extended version of it because they're going to get a lot more time at Double A than Henderson did. He was just up there for a few weeks and then got at bats in the championship series and looked really good there. But you have to think that that experience for Henderson last year getting that taste in Double A helped his development this year. So if the Orioles feel that that's the case, then these are three players very worthy of that kind of challenge. Yep, you're starting to see too. With well, now move on from that because that's going to fall into another question. I, people ask good questions. We got good questions <laughs> lined up, and these talking points keep bringing up uh, answers to those questions. So we'll we'll save it. We'll focus now on Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg and Taryn Baver too, because Nick wrote an interesting piece of Baltimore Sports and Life last week talking about these three players. Henderson right now is 18 games into his AAA tenure. He's got an OPS of over 900. Jordan Westberg at 16 games, an OPS of over 1,000 at the AAA level. Taryn Vavra has picked up kind of where he left off at the plate since coming off the IL. So, Nick, I'll turn it over to you. What are you seeing with those three guys right now? A lot. Um, I will say – like, I feel like we need to pump the brakes on Gunnar Henderson just a little bit. Like, he has more strikeouts than walks now in AAA. So, clearly, uh, we're entering we have a Gunnar Henderson problem area right now. And I think we might have jumped the gun here. So, like, at at best, he's probably, what, Rio Ruiz when he gets to the major leagues. Um, no, did I do a good Orioles Facebook impression there? That's 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 what I was going for with that. Um no, like Henderson, I, I think he's starting to show that easy opposite field power that was so prominent in Del Marva. Um, the on-base percentage is just absurd. I think he could go what over his next ninety, striking out all ninety times, and his on-base percentage would still be you know a, above league average, and he still wouldn't match, or I think he would at that point match last year's strikeout total. Um, so just insane on-base numbers. The defense, I've mentioned plenty of times before, I love the defensive improvements he's made and not just the range and the, the plus arm that he has out there, but the guy's got hops as well as we saw the other day with that big grab. Um, you know, I think it's very clear that you know, this organization isn't going to call guys up until these top prospects are truly ready and they're up for good. Although I think the Kyle Stowers case is kind of unique. I know you could probably point to that and say, hold up, but I think that was a unique situation. But um, with Henderson, I think it's just make sure, like, let's avoid any extended slumps with him because he's going to face these, start facing guys multiple times. He's going to start seeing these quad A guys, these experienced guys with MLB experience a second, maybe even a third time, depending on Norfolk's schedule, how it rolls out. Um, I'm sure it got teams like Durham, 
uh, in Charlotte. I'm sure I haven't looked at the schedule, but I'm sure they play them multiple times over these next couple of weeks. Uh, but can Henderson adjust to their adjustments and just avoid those extended uh, slumps, which he hasn't really shown at all this year? Um, you know, we started to see some of the AAA numbers stabilize a bit, but he's still a well above average player up here. Uh, and I think with Jordan Westberg, it's kind of the same thing. At this point, you know, what else does Jordan Westberg really have to show you? I think it's a lot of the same as we know Westberg goes on these extended slumps. We saw that at pretty much every level he's been at. Can he avoid doing that in Norfolk? Uh, and he's kind of the gate so hot. It's just the power for me is truly remarkable. I don't know he's played that many games at Norfolk. I know Norfolk can be a difficult park to hit out of. I feel like most of his damage has come on the road. Um, I'd have to look deeper into that, but I mean, he's got what 14 extra base hits in like 16 games at the triple a level, which is just insane. Um, leads all, no one would have guessed that at this point in the season, he would be the minor league leader in home runs with 14. He's got more than Kyle Stowers, Kobe Mayo and Gunnar Henderson. Um, so yeah, Westbury's having a fantastic season. And I think he, it'd be cool to see them both promoted on the same day again to the major leagues, like I mentioned in my piece, but I think Westbury is much closer to the majors. I don't think it's we're too long before we see him in the big leagues. Probably the trade deadline. I imagine there's a lot of movement around the trade deadline, and maybe that opens up a spot for him. Or if you want to put him at third base right now, I mean, in a couple of weeks, he could be up as the everyday third baseman for the Orioles. But uh, Vavro, on the other hand, yeah, it's a slower process with him because he's missed so much time with injury. Then he gets hit in the head, and then his next at-bat, when he comes back, he gets hit in the elbow. Uh, which did not look pretty. And I was like, he, he's going to miss more time now with an elbow injury, but stayed in that game, stole a base. He's fine. Um, Vavra just works at bats better than I think almost anybody in this system. Uh, I think he's one of the smartest hitters in this system. And again, my evaluation hasn't changed though of him. Do I think he's an everyday second baseman at the major league level? Probably not, but I think this is a guy who's going to stick around the major leagues for a very long time as a valuable utility guy. And I don't think he's too far away from the majors either. Yeah, well said all across the board. Uh, Jordan Westberg, you know he's on a heater because he's only walking 4% of the time and only striking out 17% of the time. His ISO is 366, 191 WRC+. Plus. He's just seeing the ball really well right now, and he's not going to take borderline pitches when he knows he can just crush them at this moment. So I'm kind of curious to see what happens once he kind of settles in a little bit you know i mean it's been 16 games not like it's been just one week or anything but i want to see what he looks like in three four weeks from now if he's even still in the minor leagues by then and see if he can keep that strikeout rate down which would be a career low he's typically been above 25 percent everywhere he goes even with having success but he also has been walking at least 11 percent of the time throughout his career so you know that's going to change curious to see how that goes and and Gunnar Henderson, I just noticed steamer projections for the rest of the season. At the major league level, he was projected to have a 116 WRC plus, which for a 20-year-old who just got moved up to AAA is pretty remarkable. Jordan Westbrook's only at a 102, according to them. So yeah, these guys are just exciting to watch night in and night out. Gunnar Henderson had that awesome leaping grab at shortstop too. So defensively, they're doing it as well. Vavra. I want to see him at the major league level so bad. If he could just stay, stay healthy for a consistent amount of time, I feel like he could get there. He can back up center field. You don't need Ryan McKenna anymore. If he can get to the major league level, he can play second base. You don't need Rugnet Odor anymore if he can get to the major league level. And Kyle Stowers has just been 
so consistent. I don't know if we're talking about him right now, but it just seems natural to throw him into the mix. He's always had even splits between right and left-handed pitching. That has continued month to month. His splits have been pretty consistent in the upper 800s as far as OPS. So the future is knocking on the door and the trade deadline's like a month away. Could be sooner than we think. Yeah, I think that the only thing missing with Terran Vavra at this point is just a extended stretch of health at AAA because he didn't stay, you know, he only got into what about 40 to 50 games last year, I think. Um, So he missed a lot of time his injury last year. He's missed some time again this year, but when he has been on the field, he has been so consistent in, as Nick said, just maybe working at bats better than anybody in the organization. So I think that Vavra just needs an extended stretch of time, maybe a few weeks, maybe a month. I don't know what it exactly is, but just an extended stretch of time where he's down there healthy in the lineup every day, and that promotion is going to come. And I think that he's the kind of player that when he comes into the major leagues, it's going to add something right away because even if he gets off to a slow start, he's still going to be putting together good at-bats. It's going to look similar to Adley Rutzman, not as much power, but similar in the sense that I don't think his approach is going to change based on the way things are going for him at the plate at any given time. And we actually didn't have Stowers lined up here to discuss, but Bob, I'm glad that you brought him up because he has been really consistent at AAA this year. And I, I don't think he really has anything left there to prove because he hit well there at the end of last year. He's hitting well there again this year. It's just a matter of trying to find him regular at bats, which you can't do in the major leagues right now. If you call Kyle Stowers right now without moving somebody else, you wouldn't be able to get him regular at bats. So that's going to probably have to be what happens to get Stowers in the major leagues for good is someone, you know, don't want to say somebody gets hurt, but you know, someone gets traded or you do have an injury and their player is going to be out for a little while. That's probably when you see Stowers. That's, that's the whole episode in and of itself, I think, talking about how we get him on the major league roster, uh, which is certainly an interesting conversation that we are going to have to have soon with the trade deadline approaching. Um, it's crazy to believe like the minor league season is half over. Even the major league season is essentially half over at this point. It's mind-blowing. But, yeah, I mean, you look at Stowers' numbers in AAA, he's cut that strikeout rate down like 7 8% from last year, from his AA numbers. Um, which is phenomenal because we see that swing. And even Matt Borg-Schulte made the comment, like the guy's got a swing on him, right? And uh, the strikeouts have come down significantly this year. The walk rate has remained the same. Uh, he's hitting for average. He's getting continue to get on base at a high clip. The WRC plus is you know, 131 right now in AAA. Yeah, I want to see what this guy can do in the major leagues uh, on a regular basis. And so it's, like I said, it, the interesting part is how do we get him on this major league roster playing every single day because you know right now you're not going to move Mullins you're not going to move Hayes uh and Santander is playing well uh, so where is he going to fit at you can't put him in DH either with you know Mancini and Mount Castle and Rutschman obviously but it's gonna be interesting to see how this major league roster shakes out over the next couple of weeks that's for sure yeah one way or the other you got to find find some room for Stowers he's he's pretty much ready even if it's just Mancini that gets traded and you can rotate him between him and Santander, Santander between uh, right field and DH, that's better than nothing. But you, I think you'd like to see at least one of these outfielders traded as well if you can get a good return because 
like we were talking about before the show, Vavra has been playing a lot of center field. You know, you want to use his versatility the way they're kind of designing him to be used in the minor leagues. And you want to see Stowers every day. Plus, Yusniel Diaz is coming back, hopefully, <laughs> for longer than a week. Uh, and he, Elias talks about him wanting to get him some uh, major league time in the second half of the season. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting month here. We saw a trade today, Carlos Santana going from the Royals to the Mariners. So, Looks like trade season has officially begun, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's shocker that Jerry Depoto kicks this thing off <laughs> as early as he does. Uh, I mean, I, my only other thought with Kyle Stowers, though, is like just thinking about this, because I made the comment of why did Stowers get sent to the Arizona Fall League, and I remember saying it's probably to showcase him a little bit, uh, but unfortunately he got hurt because he played across three levels last year, and so I was wondering why does this guy need more at-bats because he's not going to be on the opening day roster. I just thought that was a weird situation there. Um, but like now at this point, do we? Th- could you see my clash trading one of these guys like Kyle Stars, for instance? Or we're going to move with Santander, Mancini. There are other moves on the major league roster we think that are going to take place first. And Sowers is going to get his chance in Baltimore first and foremost. Personally, okay. I think it's the latter. Just because my thought with him going to the Fall League was, let's get him used to playing a full season's worth of baseball, That's you know, true. get him that extra month, but obviously didn't work out yeah. that way with the idea that he was going to play well into September in 2022. Yeah. I, I think they're higher on Stowers than the rest of the league personally, just because that strikeout rate probably alarms some teams if they're just looking at his numbers, but look, he's, they've already cut that and the consistency is there. The power is there. I, th- I think they want to hold on to him. I, I don't, I know we're going to get to that point, right? Where we're, we, either have to unfortunately or need to or want to use them as far as getting like a top line starting pitcher or a star player but i just don't think we're quite there yet yeah i agree with bob and i would i would add on to that too that i think at this point the orioles probably are gonna look at how long do we have this player under control and if you're looking Mm -hmm. i think santander has two years of team control remaining after this year Mancini has a mutual option, which is all but certain to be declined by one side or the other after this season. So he'll become a free agent. Um, Whereas Stowers, you'll have six years. Um, So that's going to, you know, trying to take that competitive window and extend it a little bit is going to depend in part on having players that are young and cost controlled for a few years. Or in the case where, you know, possibly with Adley Rutzman, if you do see an extension at some point, You've got that number locked down for the next eight, 10 years. You know what you're going to be paying him. And now if you want to go out and you want to sign a big free agent, or maybe there's a starting pitcher, pitcher out there that's got a couple of years of team control left, and you think you can get him to sign McStenson after a deal, you do that. And one of the ways you probably do that is, you know, trade Anthony Santander and bring up Kyle Stowers or trade Trey Mancini and bring up Kyle Stowers because you know that Mancini's probably not going to be in Baltimore. Yeah, it's going to be um, next couple of weeks are going to be really interesting to see how this roster shakes out. But at the same time, um, preparing for a lot. I think I think all Royals fans are preparing for a lot emotionally uh, right now. And to be fair, when it comes to Trey Mancini, we're, we're going off the rails there with that talk. But um, <laughs> I'll just say I'm preparing for a lot. And, and I think it's OK. Whatever your feelings are about this. Um, I think they're okay and they're validated right now. Yeah, I think last trade deadline, we were pretty much prepared for nothing to happen. 
I kind of feel the opposite this year. I kind of feel like a lot is going to happen and people are not going to be happy with it just because the Orioles are playing so well. But I think the way the system is getting top heavy, it's not going to be sure, you know, established veterans are going to be hard to replace even with the most talented prospects. But I think it's going to be suffer. Um, what am I thinking? Uh, it's going to not be quite as bad just because the guys that will have ready to replace the people that theoretically get traded will at least be able to hold their own or at least gain experience for, for the future when we're really going to need them. Yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on that in a few weeks. Before we move on entirely from Norfolk, uh, I do want to talk about D.L. Hall a little bit. It feels like stuff-wise Hall is ready, even though his last couple of starts have not been his best outings. Uh, he had a rough outing against Lehigh Valley on Sunday. His outing earlier in the week against Lehigh Valley was a little bit better, but still walked five batters while striking out three and four in the third innings pits. I guess where I'm kind of leading this discussion is that we know we're probably going to see D.L. Hall in the majors this year as long as he stays healthy and he can take the mound when he needs to take the mound. But what does he need to do at AAA to convince you that he's ready or do you already feel like he's ready and these you know uneven results from time to time don't really persuade you? Personally, I'm in the same boat as I was even before back-to-back rougher outings. Um, the stuff is just so, so damn good. And I feel like he's the type of guy, I've been saying this, like he's the type of guy that I feel like once he gets the call, he's going to step up his game for that moment. Just I love the bulldog mentality that he has, the confidence that he has. And the stuff is so good. If Just try to throw it over the middle of the plate. He's going to strike out big league, big league hitters. That's how good his stuff is. Yeah, it might delay just because they want him to probably come off a stretch of one or two good starts in a row before they call him up to the major leagues. But it hasn't it hasn't changed my opinion whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of conflicted at this point. I don't know. I don't know really which way I'm leaning. Like I, I see in here a lot of the concerns about Hall. You know, the high pitch counts and not being able to get into the fifth. Certainly not the sixth inning. These AAA starts. The walks being a sort of an issue here that you know you'd like to see a few a few number of fewer walks here with him, but at the same time, like like Bob said, the stuff is just that good. And my thing with was the secondaries, when, especially when he was in Bowie, they just looked so much more effective. And I I, I can hear like Matt Sabato's voice of basics in my head that one start where it was like strike three, change up, strike three, change up, strike three, change up, strike three, just over and over and over again. And there were a couple of starts there where the changeup was just his finishing pitch or, you know, being able to drop a curveball in or a slider in to open up account, pitch backwards, and then finish guys off with 99 mile per hour heat up in the zone. Right. And I feel like with Hall starts, like because of the lack of control, we're not really seeing, you know, those effective secondaries over and over again. Um, you know, it's been more fastball heavy almost. And again, I don't have a tracker here. I can't tell like what he's been throwing. We'll have that stack has data, but I just get the sense visually from the starts that I'm watching that it tends to be more fastball heavy. And he's having trouble locating that fastball right now. That's for sure. But at the same time, like I like Bob's point there of his personality and his attitude. I do feel like if he's in the majors, he is going to take it up, not just one notch. He's going to take it up 10 notches in the major leagues. And maybe that's going to be too much for him because we've also seen that it can be kind of easy to get to DL Hall when he's having a rough day. Uh, the pitch clock, the pitch clock is, gets into his head, I think, sometimes in the minor leagues. Uh, the umpiring strike zones, when when the broadcast teams are calling out the strike zone, like that's not, 
anybody make an excuse for DL Hall anymore. That's a bad strike zone that the, the ump is calling that day. Um, they have the accurate maps there that they're looking at, not the MILB.com ones. Uh, and the last couple starts especially, he's, he has been getting squeezed. And when that happens, you clearly see their frustrations are very visible. He wears his emotions on his sleeve, both good and bad with Hall. But yeah, so I'm just not sure. Like, do, do you bring him up and say, the stuff is so good, let's figure it out. And maybe at the same time, we're not trying to get you to go six innings a start because I'm sure there's a hard cap with his innings after last season. So can you go out there and give us four innings every five days until you reach your cap in the major league level? Um, I don't know which way I land anymore. I tend to say, let's just bring him up in a couple of weeks and go with it. Uh, but at the same time, like I fully understand why they want to keep him in AAA until at least what August. Yeah. And you don't know how much the AAA slash major league ball is is taken into effect yeah. with his command feel for secondaries. Like you said, if he's maybe he's working on, you know, the command of the secondaries with the different ball behind the scenes. And during his starts right now, he's going more fastball heavy. I mean, we don't know these things. Justin Ramsey hit us up if you got the answers, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Blake Snell has always been the comparison, right? He's going to be a five and dive elite pitcher and it's looking more and more like the case, but at least for now, that's fine. You can, he's, he's still very young. You can always just work on that as you get to the major leagues. There's only so much a guy with that good of stuff can work on at the minor league level, just because hitters don't have a chance. They don't have a chance to hit him at that level. Yeah. I, I think I understand where Nick is because I'm there in some ways with him where I think my issue sometimes is I wish that his starts were going a little bit more efficiently. He did get to 92 pitches three outings ago, or excuse me, two outings ago, he got to 92 pitches. But, you know, he's starting to get into consistently into the 80s with his pitch counts, but he's only gone through the fifth inning once at Norfolk. So part of me does wish that he would be a little bit more efficient, but then at the same time, they're not building him up. I think the way that they were trying to build up Grayson Rodriguez and Kyle Bradis. Those are two guys that have the profile of being able to go deep in the games or whatever definition of deep in the games is in today's baseball. D.L. Hall is probably not that kind of pitcher. So I don't know how much the innings should be a concern. Um, but like Nick said, there probably is a hard cap. So if you bring him up to the major leagues, it's a question of do you want him to get through five every time out if he can? Or is it go out, give us four shutdown innings? We've shown that we can make this piggyback thing work this year and we'll look to stretch you out next year. Just go in and get used to major league hitters. And my thing with Dale Hall is regardless of the results right now, clearly in many areas, he has taken a step forward this year. Uh, and to see him pitch as well as he did right out of the gates after not pitching for almost a full year was phenomenal. And I think that speaks to his ability. Uh, and I also wonder, you know, thinking about – bring him up in a couple of weeks or bring him up later in the season. How many pitchers at the major league level are just blowing expectations out of the water? And you look at the production that the major league staff is getting out of their pitchers. I almost wonder, you know, better coaching up there against better hitters with his mentality. Could that major league staff get more out of him? Like they are with so many of these other guys. Um, I almost wonder if that's the case as well. I don't know. Definitely something to think about. And we'll turn our attention now to some listener questions that we got. And uh, some of them came from our Patreon chat. Some of them came from Twitter. And we'll start with at BGreen484, who has this question. This is a point that was made today. I know Nathan Ruiz brought it up that 
nine of ten pro, nine of the ten top prospects are now at the double A level or higher in the Orioles system with today's promotions. So the question here is: Are there any negatives to nine of the top ten prospects being in double A or higher? The draft next month will replenish some of the rosters for Delmarva and Aberdeen, but wasn't sure if this was typical or not. Obviously, plenty of positives about it, and it seems like 2024 could be a fun year. And I'll let Bob start in this one. In short, is there anything wrong with that? No, <laughs> because if you look at the Cubs' top 30 prospect rankings, most of their guys are in the lower minors. I think if you ask a team, do you want most of your best prospects to be succeeding in the upper minors or the lower minors? Upper minors is because they're close to the majors. They're closer to fulfilling their potential. And like you said, we have the first pick in the draft. We have a bunch of good draft picks coming up that will easily replenish the the ceiling, the upside. And I think it's also good. These guys aren't graduating yet. You know, some of them will, some of them won't, but there's also so much depth in the system. Give guys like John Rhodes and Zach Peak and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, a chance to get to that top 10, top 15 range. And, and I don't know. I, I, I just can't think it's a bad thing that you're going to graduate a bunch of prospects or they're on the verge of coming off your list. I think that's, that's a good thing more than a bad thing. Some bell sound off because you just said the name of the show in your answer. <laughs> oh, geez. I didn't even realize. <laughs> I always feel weird. And I always like stop myself before. And I'm like, I don't think of some other way to phrase this. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't know if it's typical or not, but you know, with other organizations, but I was actually going to make this note when talking about Henderson at Westberg and these promotions to Bowie we just saw today. Like you're seeing those, those constant waves of talent, of real talent um, now being formed. And they are starting to move closer and closer to, to the shores of the major league, right? Uh, that, that analogy there. But, and there's still some really good talent down in Aberdeen. Bob mentioned John Rhodes. Um, Dante Williams, I think, is a really interesting. You have someone like T.T. Bowens, I think, is an interesting bat. The pitchers, especially in Aberdeen. Um, there are a lot of guys there as well. And Delmarva, like, I don't really see a whole lot in Delmarva that's ready for Aberdeen. Heston Kershad, obviously, is one. Uh, Anthony Servideo, once he gets some more regular playing time under him, I'd say he can move up as well. I don't really see you know, much talent in Delmarva that's ready for Aberdeen. I'm not saying there's no talent in Delmarva. There's plenty of it. There's just 18, 19-year-old kids down there getting their first taste. Uh, so, yeah, those rosters will be replenished with these draft picks and such. But, I mean, you've got some big talents in the FCL, like Michael Hernandez and Samuel Pasayo are down there. And I know Hernandez is heating up. Uh, Pasayo has been putting bat to ball really well. Uh, you look at his numbers in the FCL, he's playing well so far. And it's only been, what, three weeks or so in the Dominican Summer League, but all these top guys that they gave top dollar to are off to really impressive starts in the Dominican Summer League. Uh, so, And we're going to have another international draft clash right behind them with bigger signings. Uh, so, yeah, I think having so many of the organization's top prospects in Bowie and Norfolk, is, it's a really good thing. It means all those guys that we were talking about when this show first started back in 2020 – when they were in, we're talking about Gunnar Henderson and Delmarva, and people say, well, that's cool, that's cute, he's doing well in Delmarva, but what can he do when he gets to the major leagues? You're getting a real taste of that in AAA right now. Um, so, yeah, I think, if anything, it just means that for people who want a big-time major league product and people who want Michael Elias to start spending some money on the major league roster, I think this is telling you that that time is coming, like, now, this offseason. Also, okay. like... <laughs> The point of it, yeah, it's cool to have number one farm system. It's cool to have such a deep, awesome farm team. But 
the point of this is to have a awesome major league team and have success at the major league level. And we're right on the, I almost, I almost <laughs> did it again. We're, we're right there of having that happen. And, you know, this is the elite talent pipeline. This is not, this is not our one shot. Like this is going to be a continuous flow. Hopefully that's the plan of, uh, of talent. So yeah, that's where I'm at with. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see anything wrong with nine, nine to 10 being there. Part of it is just the way the organization stacks up right now with how that top 10 comes together. I mean, most of those guys were, I think pretty much everyone was high A and above to start the season. So it's natural that at this point you would be there where it's double A and above. Um, but it, it speaks to the fact that the players who we expect to make an impact in the major leagues within the next year or two are knocking on the door right now. And that constitutes the top part of your farm system, which is never bad in any circumstance. But then you add in the talent, not just, you know, in the lower levels of the system, but the talent when you get into the, you know, 10 through 20, 20 through 30 range on most Orioles prospect lists right now. And I know ours is going to be really reflective of that when we make the main update on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com uh, probably in the next month or so that there's a lot of good players beyond the top 10. So I think it's a good position for the organization to be in. And this will go on a different note here. And this is from at, uh, at Ben Pacros on Twitter. Should the Orioles sign a big time position player this or next off season? And if so, which promising minor league player are you comfortable with blocking their call up? And I'll start with Nick. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I ended my last answer. Like, spend the money now like let's you can sign that star this offseason and i don't think he's going to block anybody because you know, if you sign that star shortstop and i'm completely fine bring in that stud third baseman or that stud shortstop this offseason open up the checkbook and give them the money and if it's a shortstop you can move gunner henderson to third base and you can put westberg at second base um they are versatile and if you move them around the infield they don't lose value by moving them uh, off shortstop, I don't think. Uh, and same case, if you sign the stud third baseman, and I don't have a list of potential free agents in front of me, so I don't really know who I'm targeting here. But if it's a third baseman, uh, star veteran third baseman, then same thing, leave Gunner at short and move Westberg over to second or vice versa. If we don't know how the organization grades defense. But yeah, I would love to see them nail down that star bat, like that bona fide veteran bat, that Carlos Correa type bat that everybody wanted last offseason. Could it be Cray this offseason? Maybe. I don't know. But um, someone like that, and then you fill the pieces around him. You've got Rutschman. You've got Mount Castle. You've got Hayes really emerging this year. You've got the good, young, valuable pieces. Bring in your stud or two, uh, and then fill in the rest of the pieces around him. And if anyone does happen to be blocked, well, you you trade him for starting pitching. Let's use those assets down in the minor leagues. Yeah. I, I don't like the phrase, who are you comfortable blocking? Because, like, if these prospects pan out and the Orioles like them enough that, hey, this is who we want to keep as part of our core, like Kobe Mayo, just hypothetically in a year or two, you sign Carlos Correa. You got to do it. If you can do it, you got to do it. He's a great player right now. And like you said, you can move Gunnar Henderson around. You can move Jordan Westberg to second base, or you could trade Jordan Westberg. You could, you know, put – Kobe Mayo at right field with that arm. He's going to make Austin Hayes look like Cedric Mullins out there as far <laughs> as arm strength goes. Like you find a way. If you have talented players, you will find a way to get them in the lineup on the field every day to help your team. And I just can never see not wanting to 
spend the money, like you said, and get an established for sure. Well, nothing's for certain <laughs> in baseball, but a, at least a veteran presence who has a history of continued success at the plate or on the mound. I, I can never, you know, we want to win World Series. You're going to have to have, <laughs> sorry, Eric, I, I want to keep Kobe on this team, even if it's in right field. But no, right now I'd keep it third. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you want talented players. And if there's some available to you for the only price is money, <laughs> then you got to do it. And these these prospects were high on them. And I think a bunch of them will pan out and be huge parts of that. But I don't think you're blocking anyone. If they're, if they're good enough, they'll make it. They'll help you in one way or another. Yeah, I agree. And I'm looking at the free agent list for next year. And you know, Xander Bogarts is available. Carlos Correa is available. But guys, hear me out. Michael Franco is available. You can bring him back, put him at third base, 2023 playoffs booked. I mean, look what they've done with these pitchers. I mean, let's start doing it with the hitters. Uh, you know, it just took some time for Chris Holt and staff to settle in at the major league level. We got Matt Brooke Schulte and Ryan Fuller. They're settled in. Yeah, bring Michael Franco back, and there we go. Turn him around, all-star. So we've got a question here from at the Mad Behemoth. Some prospects, not top prospects, but prospects nonetheless, are getting squeezed for playing time. Adam Hall and Greg Cullen, for example, are at least being pushed out of their natural positions. What will happen to them? And are there others you'd want to highlight? That's a good question. I'll start with Bob on that. Yeah, I don't – again, this is, I think, problems that a deep, um, great farm system are going to have. Like you have too many – good players for only so many positions and trying to balance them being at the right level for their development versus getting every day at bats. And I think you'll see like these string of promotions with Norby and Mayo being promoted to Bowie that you'll start to see like Daryl Hernandez get more every day at bats in Aberdeen. Yeah. I don't, I don't know as far as in particular Hall and Cullen, I'm not sure how high the organization is on Cullen necessarily that they're going to want to get him at a certain position in a certain amount of at bats. But the guy like Adam Hall, we know they're at least decently high on him, at least his upside. And, and he's been performing much better this year. I don't know if maybe he's, he's still stealing bases. He's still hitting and running. I don't know why he hasn't been in the field so much lately, but I'm sure they have <laughs> the reasons um, he can play second base a little bit, outfield a little bit. He's kind of like Taron Vavra, super light, right-handed version. Uh, I'm trying to think while I'm pontificating. <laughs> I'm trying to look up for any other guys that could be in a similar boat and uh, not necessarily finding any, but it'll be interesting to see how Hudson Haskin gets used in the outfield now that Kowser's up, who's going to get most of the starts in center field between the two of those. Um, and Zach Watson, so he kind of got like three center fielders there in that outfield. That should be good for the pitching staff. Uh I'll concede my time. As, as I didn't think about the center field aspect. I was just so excited about that infield in Bowie again <laughs> that yeah, didn't Zach Watson like rob two home runs yesterday? Uh so at least one and another two fantastic plays at the fence yesterday. Uh and so yeah, it will be interesting. And Hudson Haskin just having his bat in the lineup. But yeah, I just think like this is just kind of part of new baseball now, right? Like guys have to be versatile and for guys like Adam Hall and Taryn Vavra, like it increases their resume a little bit, I think. And at the end of the day, like if someone's getting squeezed for playing time, then it's a clear sign that they're not a major focus of the future. If they're bouncing around like your Greg Cullens and AJ Graffininos, you know, that makes it difficult to see a future for them. Um, but 
Yeah, the Adam Hall thing is kind of weird. If he is DHing that much and he's not playing at second base all the time, or even in center field, um, is there an injury? Like, what exactly is going on with Adam Hall? Do, are the Orioles not that high on Hall? Although it seemed like when we talked to Tim DeJean that you know, the Orioles seemed to be pretty impressed with his defensive abilities, especially in center field. Uh, and you know, but at the same time, I've been waiting for Adam Hall. I feel like we've been giving him this this Hall pass uh, in his delay <laughs> because of his. You know, because of his amateur uh, career and not playing at some of the best competition when he was an amateur, but the guy's 23 years old now. So, I mean, you got you got to hit or, you know, that's going to be the end of the road for you. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting question because you have guys like Colin and AJ Graffin, you know, who we were excited when the Orioles picked them up for Tommy Malone uh, a few years ago. And, in fact, I think we might have had – briefly had Graffinino in our top 30. I can't remember for sure, but I think he was around the top 30 when he came in. But, yeah, players are going to get squeezed. They're going to have to, you know, find at bats in some way because these spots in the organization, up the middle, second base, shortstop, center field, are loaded right now. And you're seeing that it's not stopping the top prospects from moving up. You know, no one was looking at Bowie and thinking, well, Cesar Prieto is there. That blocks Connor Norby. That's not how the Orioles are handling it. So versatility really is going to be key for those guys. And I think especially for someone like Adam Hall, because he's got just enough tools to make you think he could possibly be a big leaguer. But is it necessarily going to be at one position? He could put that speed to use and develop in the outfield. So hopefully he gets more time in the field here over the next couple of months to show that. One talking about position changes and guys, that made you think of Norfolk. Uh, why is Caden Grenier playing first base for the Norfolk <laughs> Tides? Because he ran into Taryn Vavra. I think this was just in Sunday's game. He ran into Taryn Vavra. Uh, I think he ran into DL Hall or almost bowled him over. Uh, and DL Hall was making the plays himself out there on the mound defensively. Uh, a couple of pass balls over at first base. I don't understand why they're like Preston Palmeroing him and moving him over to uh, first base. And you get rid of Patrick Dorian, which I know Dorian is, wasn't a prospect uh, in that sense. And he had a fantastic year in double-A, really struggled in triple-A, uh, which was unfortunate to see. The organization seemed pretty high on Dorian him, bringing him into these off-season camps with guys like Robert Newstrom and stuff. But, you know, why why let Dorian go only to have someone like Grenier play first base? I, I didn't get it. But at least kudos to the Orioles. They did at least trade him. Uh, and instead of just outright cutting him, I thought that was a little bit better. But yeah, a lot of names being thrown around there. Like Jacob, I think there's a lot of injuries to catchers with Norfolk's roster as well, but it's not a big deal. It just came in my mind. It's just annoying when you're watching DL Hall try to settle in and you're seeing Kane Grenier botch literally everything out there on the field. But hey, some people <laughs> say his defense at shortstop is a little overrated. Maybe this goes into that, or maybe it's just because Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westbrook are on a team and he's not going to find much playing time other than that. Bring up Dashbach. Put him at first base, please, in AAA. You know, a question is in a kind of off the board uh, completely for us. If you could have one other, this is from um, at Hi uh, Ranica. Uh, if you could have one other <laughs> prospect from any other team, who would it be and why? Additionally, what does that say about the state of our system and the route we decide to go in the 2022 draft? So I'll start mm-hmm. with Nick here. Yeah, this is actually a really old question, but when we took listener questions, I remembered Ty's question from a long time ago, and I just threw it in there for fun. Um, 
it is kind of interesting. Any other prospects? I'm a big Corbin Carroll guy. I don't care how deep our outfield is, but my answer is going to be Daniel Espino uh, from Cleveland. Maybe a little risky, but I want the guy who throws 100 miles an hour and striking out like two guys per inning, I think was his average in double A. I know he's hurt right now, but I think he's coming back soon. But I'll take that risk. I want one of those guys in our system. And uh, if he were to join, this is we know it's not going to happen. Uh, this is just for fun. But what would that say about the 2020 draft the route the Orioles take? Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, you still take whoever you want. And that's regardless. I said last week during our mock draft, if the Orioles weren't picking 1-1, but still were in the top 10, Kevin Parada would be much higher up my list. Catcher Kevin Parada would be much higher up my list, even if the organization thought he could stick at catcher, even with Adley Rutschman in the organization. Uh, I don't care about position when we're talking about the draft. Yeah, this is a tough question for sure. Corbin Carroll is the easy answer, of course. I feel like he's going to be right up there with Gunnar Henderson as far as top uh, prospects in baseball by the time next year rolls around. But I'm going to go with Jackson Churio of the Milwaukee Brewers, who is 18, 18 years old. He, he won't turn 19 until next March. He is in low A, and he has a 167 WRC+. Plus. He has a 986 OPS, eight home runs, 15 doubles, four triples, six stolen bases. Um, he's only striking out 28% of the time for a guy, kid that young at that level. Seems pretty impressive to me. He's walking around league average. Like that's what I'm waiting for with the Orioles as far as the international talent coming in. Like one of these guys to take off like a Julio Rodriguez. And I think Jackson Trio could be that level of talent. So I would take him. I'm not doing this to feed into the whole cupboard is bare narrative, but I think I would take Shane Baz right now. Uh, stuff looks good at the major league level. I think he's settling in and he's got an impressive fastball. I had the fortune to see him when Tampa Bay was just in town recently, and he looked really good on the mound. And you basically would be adding him into a system where there is already power arms at the top of the organization. So I don't think that's a weakness for the Orioles. But I would love to be able to pencil Baz into the rotation for the rest of this year and for the next several years. Um, would that affect anything for me for the 2022 draft? No, because the 2022 draft doesn't really have a lot of pitchers uh, at the top of the class, but it's deep when you get beyond, you know, the first round or so. So it wouldn't affect anything for the draft. And it honestly doesn't really speak to something I think is a weakness in the farm system. I just think seeing Baz is going to be a good pitcher and I'd like to have him. I yes. like that home run he gave up to Kyle Stowers last year. And you mentioned yeah. the name. I still remember that. He knew right off the bat. Uh, he let everybody know how mad he was about that. That was one of the best home runs of, of last year. Speaking of Shane Boz, if Shane McClanahan still qualified, I, I would take him too. The Rays yeah. know how to develop pitchers. Shout out to Shane McClanahan. He makes me a lot of money in uh, fantasy, <laughs> fantasy betting, so I'll take Shane as well. So this is a couple of questions from David in our Patreon chat, and I'll start with this one. Uh, you guys have Connor Norby, Taryn Vavrin, Cesar Prieto ranked 11th, 12th, and 14th, respectively. Can you talk about the difference between them, ceilings and floor for each? So I, I picked this question out because this was something we actually talked about a lot coming into this season. And I think where we kind of had our consensus as a group was that Norby had the highest ceiling, with Vavra as the highest floor, but we thought it was possible that Prieto could beat both of them to the major, or not necessarily Vavra, but could get to the major leagues quickly 
and have a long career there in some sort of role. But we didn't have much to go on Prieto at that point. What I want to know here is, has anything in the last few months made either one of you think about this differently or do you feel the same way? I'm, I don't feel worse about any of them, which is a good thing. Uh, I feel the same or better about each. I still think Vavra probably has the highest floor. Probably say Norby still has the highest ceiling, but Prieto is still the wild card to me. Like, what do you guys think of his performance in Double A so far? He's he's been hitting for average for the most part. He had a like an offer in the last game or two to kind of bring things back down, but hadn't isn't showing that power, which is weird because he showed more power in Aberdeen than in Bowie, and not really walking so much. Um, I still think he's just going to be a, a ha- high average guy that can hit for doubles and maybe 15 home runs a year in a full season when all is said and done. But uh, I'm glad to have all three in our system. I, I guess I'll keep everything the same on my end for now. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because the rank, I can remember how I answered this before the season started. Uh, and I'm kind of in that same boat. Even look at it now. We had never watched Prieto play before. Uh, now we have half a season worth but it is interesting because he had those what seven home runs in Aberdeen he's got just one in Bowie so that's what I was touching on earlier it's weird that he's kind of gone reverse of what we normally see guys hit struggle to get the home runs in Aberdeen they get to Bowie they really take off well it's been the opposite for Prieto uh I mean he's still swinging at everything in a good way not in a bad way like high strike high rates but he's still swinging making good contact uh these hits just aren't falling for him um like but I still agree. I do think Vavra has the highest floor. And again, he's going to be a major league utility guy for a long, long time. Uh, my only concern with Vavra is that extensive injury history. It's long, and it goes back to well before he's with the Orioles. It's nothing new with him, so I am concerned there. Norby, the power is super impressive. We already talked about that. Uh, so he, he doesn't have the positional versatility, though, I don't think. I don't really think he's played. I didn't look this up where else he's played this year, but – I feel like it's been predominantly second base DH, but Prieto has played second, short, and third. And actually, the last couple of nights has played a really, really good third base. I think Bob actually made the comment after going to one of your first games at Aberdeen. You mentioned like the arm strength didn't really seem to be there, uh, and I, it's looked it looked good over there at third base the other night. Uh, can it be consistent? I don't know. Uh, maybe that's improved with him. Uh, it'd be great if that's the case, but. Yeah, the power is interesting, but the hit tool is very impressive, and he's been playing a good infield all the way around the diamond. So I do, I do like that. He's kind of a real wild card among those three still. Yeah, I don't think that anything's really changed for me. Although I think we're getting a better sense of what kind of player Prieto is, and I could see a little bit more power there than we expected because one thing we were hearing pretty consistently was that there's not much power there. He's a contact hitter. Um, still high on Norby, like Bob said. Nobody's like. My opinion on any of these players has not gotten worse. In fact, it's gotten slightly better. So I would say that the, the highest ceiling is still Norby with Vavra, the highest floor, and Prieto as something as a wild card. And we'll go to this next question from David. Which players in your top 50 so far this season have been the biggest surprises and which have been the biggest disappointments slash worries? We're actually going to expand on this in our show next week when we kind of do a midseason roundup, but... Either one of you want to have a preliminary discussion on this now? Mm, I mean, we do some research and I'll, I'll get back to you. Give me three uh, seconds. I, I looked at our original top 50 for the first time today in a while, and uh, it's interesting, uh, to say the least. Like, as far as surprises go, 
a few guys I had questions about. They're showing me exactly kind of what I feared would happen with them, unfortunately. And I think there are a few guys who are a little bit showing more consistency and more in some areas than I thought they would, which is good sign. But as far as like just overall surprises, maybe this is a cop-out answer, but I'm going to go with it. I just think it's Gunnar Henderson. I just, we all knew he was going to be good, but I just didn't think no one thought he would be this good this early. And I just don't really see anyone on our list when thinking about my expect, my personal expectations, which I know differ from a lot of other people, but from my personal expectations, I don't really see anyone on our list that's kind of blowing me away as far as better surprises. Uh, disappointments, there are a few of those that I think we can get into a lot of those if we really wanted to, unfortunately, but I'm going to go with Garrett Stallings. Um, I hate reading these numbers on air, but we got to do it. Uh, I was probably higher on Stallings than most people. I will admit that. And I thought he was going to take a solid jump forward this year, especially after watching his first couple starts of the year. But just in the month of June, he's made five starts. He has an ERA of 28.50, a 4.17 whip, and a 536 average against in five starts that went just 12 innings. Like Those are astronomical numbers that I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty rough. Uh, and I've been a Stallings defender for quite a while. Yeah. Um, running out of excuses. No, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, something's going on there because he's not walking anyone and he's striking out guys still. So it's extremely strange to mm-hmm. me. Uh, other than him, I'd say, I mean, Joey Ortiz for me a little bit. Obviously, you know, he's not putting up the offensive numbers. At least he'll have some good, good games and then he'll take a couple of offers and kind of stay around the same, like low 200s batting average, low 600 OPS. But the defense is so good at the numbers doesn't even matter um for surprise i say guys like adam hall and usnail diaz when he's healthy um they've kind of bounced back in a pretty good way um yeah i i really don't think overall this year there's been that many disappointments outside of just untimed injuries ill-timed injuries um zach watson he's been he had a good week actually this past week but i mean he's been been pretty rough this year so far so yeah, we'll go into it. We're going to have a top 50 update as well um, next week, midseason top 50 update with uh, Kyle Bradish off of the list and Tyler Nevin. Should be interesting shakeup. And I know I made one big change personally. So become a patron if you want to listen to that. Yeah, I would say that I kind of took a little bit of a different approach just for the sake of this episode. Although I'll probably take a deeper dive next week. And I kind of looked at what what aspect of a player's performance surprised me? I'd say it's Hudson Haskins' power. Uh, we had heard murmurs that he could hit, that he had some raw power, and there were questions about whether he would tap into it. Last year, we really didn't see it before he got hurt. Um, and I don't know if we would have had he been able to finish out the season. I think he got hurt in about mid-July last year. But this year, it's been there. Uh, eight homers already. So already surpassed his total from last season even though he's played in 26 fewer games, uh, no, sorry, 28 fewer games uh, than he did last year. So Hudson Haskins' power has been a little bit of a surprise. I think as far as the disappointment goes, it would be easy, but Zach Lothar and Kevin Smith, I think both had opportunities this year and really struggled, especially Lothar. Um, And I looked at our list and I was surprised that we had him as high as we did back before the season at 24th. Um, and we were defenders of him last year because we thought the Orioles mishandled him, but he really struggled. He has really struggled at Norfolk this year. And 
now is on the development list, I believe, correct? Yeah, not even uh, on Norfolk's roster. But, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Kevin Smith I would have been my biggest disappointment, but I caught that a long time ago. Uh, I, I saw a couple of names in the chat there that I really like too. Ryan Watson, Noah Denoria, Maverick Canley. Those are all huge surprises, and those are all, all three guys performing extremely well this year. Uh, they weren't even in our top 50 to begin the year. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of good uh, depth pieces come up through this system uh, and how deep this system is because you've seen guys emerge really kind of out of nowhere. Uh, Ryan Watson was a relief guy, strictly a relief guy, and now he's uh, had a really productive year as a starter uh, in Bowie. So I think that's really good sign for this system and uh, hopefully a sign that those three guys end up in our top 50 when we update it for, for non-patrons. That, that is. <laughs> So we'll wrap up with this question from Matt. I heard this on a podcast recently that AA has pitchers with better stuff, while AAA generally has pitchers with more experience, but they aren't as good. Is that a fair assessment? Um, in a roundabout way. I think we talked about this a little bit before the show started. And, you know, AA, you have a bunch of up-and-coming young guys with great stuff that haven't really refined the approach, the pitch selection, the sequencing, the command. And AAA, yeah, they might not – the raw stuff might – be you know pitcher for pitcher not uh not quite as good but they're usually older guys that have maybe some major league experience they know how to pitch they know how to hit the corners so it's really just about refinement and maybe if you can hit double a pitching like Gunnar Harrison showed then triple a is a big test because you're gonna have to be a little bit more perfect to execute the way you were a level below and and he's showing that he's done that but I think that's pretty much what I would say about that yeah, I think that's fair. It's just a matter of you know, the AAA guys, a lot of those AAA guys, you know, it's a lot of guys like Spencer Watkins uh, and stuff. Teams have a lot of those guys on their AAA rotation, which, and Watkins has shown, he's had really good starts at the uh, major league level. And, you know, maybe they don't have the best stuff, uh, but they can expose your weaknesses a lot better, I think. Uh, they, they study you more. They know how to get guys like you out uh, at a high rate than these AA guys who are just relying on more so on their pure stuff. Um, so, I mean, we don't really have full scientific answers there, not being the scouts or anything, but I think, yeah, generally that is the case. Yeah, I agree with both of you. And we'll move in now to our final segment of the episode where we will shout out players outside of our top 30. And we went way beyond the top 30 with other players in this episode. Um, shouting out guys that have done something good recently, whether it's been a good game or a good week or it could just be something that we have in the stat line, but oh, hold on. Uh, before I get ahead of myself here, we got a couple of questions from the live audience that we're going to pull up. I've been saving a couple just to, as we've <laughs> gone along. So, when does Frederick Ben Cosme get uh, real prospect recognition? That's from you've been nowhere on YouTube. Now, right now, do it. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> again, <laughs> sign up for Patreon and uh, listen to our top 50 update because, man. This kid is putting on a show. He is being legendary right now. I would say he's just finding ways to get on base. He's walking. He's getting. He's he's got to fill out. Like he he's got room on his body to improve his power. But man, kid, just natural baseball player. Just knows how to hit. Knows how to play the game. Offensively, defensively. Um, when he got promoted to Delmarva, I was texting with Eric Garfield, and he said, "This is a kid who has a chance to be the best player on the team in a month." And I'd say he was spot on in that assessment. Yeah, it's right, it's right now. <laughs> yeah, he's just he's smooth out there too. And you can tell he's still very raw, 
very young, but you can tell uh, the high baseball IQ he has, how smooth he looks out there on the field and at the plate. Uh, he's been a pretty patient hitter for a teenager in Delmarva. Uh, so I'm cur- very curious to see how high this guy can go. And remember, he was a, a guy that, you know, when we had um, uh, Kobe Perez, blanked there for a second, we had Kobe Perez on the show. He named out Frederick Ben Cosme unprompted. And so that, I was already intrigued by these random Instagram videos, but when Kobe Prez just out of the blue name drops you, I'm filing that name in the back of my head. And so far, playing pretty well in Delmarva. Hey, um, he is 19 years old. What do you think his strikeout rate is in full season ball? 7%. You would think a young kid, you know, you usually see these high strikeout rates. Not not Mr. Fred. He's uh, walking and striking out at 7% each, so... Very impressive. All right. We had the Gene Pinto hype train going. Uh, and so I think it's time, Eric, join us with this. Uh, it's time to get the Frederick Ben Cosme. So next year on Fangraph's list, they'll be like, when we ask front office executives, who do we miss out on the Orioles system? It's Frederick Ben Cosme. Yeah, it's funny. We I think in our preview show, we did like, who's the next Gene Pinto? We didn't think about Frederick Ben Cosme. It could be a hitter the whole time. Oh, yeah, I have one more. Let's see. <laughs> Um, this one is from Bill. Did I miss any speculation on when Heston Kerstad will get moved up? Um, we didn't talk about it earlier in this show. Um, we've kind of been waiting and seeing with Kerstad, but it's probably a good uh, prompt. Do either one of you think that we're going to see him promoted soon? I do think it'll be soon. It's not obviously it's not right now. I think they just, I think they just want to get him consistent at bats. Clearly, he is too good for the level. I don't think it's necessarily about proving, you know, oh, he's too good for this level like it was with guys we talked about earlier. But I think it's just about just being consistent, maybe let him stay in one place for longer than a few weeks and just get comfortable. I think he'll definitely be pushed up at the very latest by the time the draft, the new draft class, like comes into form and gets bumped up to Delmarva, but probably even before that. Uh, I'd say another couple of weeks, but it's coming. I was shocked he didn't get called up this weekend, to be honest. I, I get it's been a long time since he played, but it, you guys had Sam Jelnick on. And if you were listening to this, you're still listening to this episode this far. You're amazing and we love you. But uh, if you did not listen to Sam Jelnick episode, go back and listen to that one because that was a fantastic interview. And it seemed like the Orioles, from Sam's point of view, what he was told, that the Orioles were going to be extremely cautious with him. And we saw that as well, seven innings in the field, DHing, days off. I mean, the guy immediately after that interview went out and played full nine innings in right field, and he's been doing that consistently. So I just don't see why he's not up at this point. That's that's the one. I'm I'm conservative when it comes to promoting guys. I say that over and over again. But with Dad, like, Bring him up to Aberdeen. The, the kid's healthy. The kid's ready to go. And he's clearly hungry. So feed him. I just wonder if they want him to end the year in Aberdeen. Uh, that maybe they think if they bring him up now that he's just going to hit too well and they're going to have to kind of rush him to do it. I don't know. I, I'm trying to find reasons because, yeah, I was surprised as well. But clearly they have a plan with him, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah, good that he's doing this. Yeah, it's, yeah. Exactly, and that's a huge win for the Orioles. I don't think it's going to be a whole lot longer before we see him in Aberdeen. I, I don't have an exact date in mind, but I don't think he's going to be in high A, or excuse me, low A, a whole lot longer. Any more questions? No, I think that's it. <laughs> All right, so we'll go into our final segment now, and I'll start this week. Um, 
because we got to mention a, a guy who was also promoted on Monday, and that was Ryan Higgins, who's taking the leap from Delmarva to Aberdeen. And the thing that's been interesting is that Higgins has not had an opportunity to play for an extended time since he was drafted last year. Missed time last summer with an injury, missed some time this year with injury, but he hit really well last week, um, shortly after coming off the IL. And the one thing we've heard about with Higgins is the power is kind of intriguing. So the Orioles must have felt like now that he's healthy, he's ready to take that next step and go to high A. So I'm curious to see if we see the power take over there. And then for pitcher, I'm going to recognize Morgan McSweeney. Uh, He's kind of been on my radar here for a few weeks for this segment, but he's pitching very well at Norfolk right now. He was promoted about the same time as Jordan Westbrook and Gunnar Henderson. And if you're looking at someone who could be a bullpen option in the major leagues later this season, I would say keep an eye on McSweeney, who had a solid run at Bowie. His number, some of his numbers weren't great because of a couple of bad outings early on, but he had really been locked in in the time leading up to the promotion. So Van Grass was high on him coming into this season. So good returns so far from McSweeney at AAA, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does over the next few months. Love it. Uh, my hitter, I'm going to go to the SCL and go to Luis Gonzalez. Uh, you know, the, the SCL Orioles are going through a learning process right now, we'll say, to start the year. But a lot of these top prospects are performing well and adjusting, seem to be adjusting to life stateside pretty well, uh, especially at the plate. Uh, so, But Luis Gonzalez was a guy who is standing out to me in these box scores, right? He's in the last four games. So just last week, he hit 272 with seven walks in four games. You go back two more days when he snapped an extended hitless streak. He's got seven hits in his last six games. He's raised his average from 091 to 220 in the on-base percentage from 231 to 385. This is over the course of a week. Um, He does have at least one strikeout in every game this year. So that is a potential red flag, but he's just 19. And there was a lot of hype around Gonzalez going back two years now, I think. So hopefully he's starting to settle in there and he can turn a corner and end the year in Delmarva. And for my pitcher, I'm going to the bullpen. I was just going to say Bowie's bullpen. There are a lot of guys, but uh, I'm going to go Tyler Birch. I thought this would be a good opportunity to highlight some good Bowie pitching because it has been rocky at many points this season, but like, Zach Peake has been on a roll this month. Noah DeNoyer is just dominating everybody. Justin Armbruster had a good debut. Drew Rahm had a fantastic outing his last time out. He's missed some time. He's working his way back. Hopefully he's there now. And relievers like Connor Loprich, Easton Lucas, shout out to all those guys. But Tyler Birch was a guy who threw four and a third scoreless innings this week. One hit, no walks, four strikeouts. And he was someone highlighted by Matt Blood personally before the season started. So Although it hasn't been a great season for him overall this year, maybe this past week was a turning point. And like we mentioned before, when when Matt Blood goes on record about a guy, I'm going to pay attention. And so hopefully the second half of the season goes much better for Tyler Birch than the first half did. Yes. And I'll go with uh, Nolberth Romero. He had a great week for Delmarva, had three home runs, 10 RBIs, and yeah, he just continues to surprise me with the power that he's shown. It's hard to believe this is the guy we got back from Andrew Kashner, and he's like basically the same exact age as Kobe Mayo, and we got him like three years ago. It's amazing. Um, but uh, he's got pretty good metrics as well on the season. He's got a fairly low Babbitt for someone that is his speed, so I think you could even see his average go up with some better luck. But he's got an 8.7 walk percentage, which is – 
around average, maybe slightly above, and he's striking out less than 20% at 19.3%. His ISO is 161. These are all good numbers for a 20-year-old in low A, and he plays solid defense, 98 WRC+. plus. Just an encouraging start for him, and uh, especially coming off a good week, I thought I'd highlight him. And as we were talking about the the next Gene Pinto, well, there might be a left-handed version that just got promoted to Delmarva with Davy Cruz. They're the same height, 5'11". Uh, Davy Cruz is 18 years old, doesn't turn 19 until February. So that puts him ahead of Pinto's timeline, actually. And this is a guy who had a 5.2 ERA in the DSL last year, but a FIP in XFIP in the low threes. He struck out 12 and a half batters per nine. Um, he is another guy that has gotten ground balls. Um, he had a 50% ground ball rate this year in the FCL with a 277 ERA, almost 12 batters striking out uh, per nine. And he had his first low A appearance. He gave up one run over three innings um, with three strikeouts. So excited to see him get his, his start at such a young age in full season ball. And Bill Duck did have one more question. Uh, I'm going to be the guy that just keeps bringing up questions throughout this entire show. Okay, so question here from Bill. Well, I guess technically I didn't ask a question about Creed Williams. Seriously, are we worried about his hit tool or his lack of conditioning? I'll take this one first. Um, again, this is an 18-year-old kid. And I think, let's see, the, if he started the season in FCL, that would have been perfectly normal or even ahead of schedule as far as uh, his timeline is. And if he, I don't know. I just feel like the Orioles drafted him and gave him a $1 million signing bonus for a reason. They saw something in the underlying metrics when he went to Camden Yards and was mashing her runs out there that they liked. They liked the leadership abilities, the, the, what he has behind the plate potentially. And I think they're pushing him and letting him struggle at full season ball at this age for a reason. I think it's kind of like they want him to realize what he's got to work on. I think they think he can handle it because honestly, it could be him and Samuel Basayo behind the plate every day in the FCL this entire year and no one will blink an eye. So I'm not worried. Um, he's got so much time to develop. I think this is just a learning experience that they think he can handle and we'll see where he goes with it. Yeah, my only thing with with Creed is that he is he is a teenager and he is a catcher that they're working with him behind the plate full time right now. Um, no talk of him moving to the outfield or first base anytime soon, at least. Uh, and so the fact that he's learning how to catch that pitching staff in Delmarva has been wrecked by injuries, promotions, guys going up and down between FCL Delmarva, Delmarva to Aberdeen. So a constantly a new staff there in Delmarva. The language barrier, I don't know how much Spanish Creed speaks, uh, but you have a lot of guys on that FCL roster or Delmarva roster who I I, I would assume know very limited uh, English. And so there's probably a language barrier there as well. There's just a lot of factors that go into this. And catchers, it takes catchers much longer to develop than everybody else. So, yeah, not concerned. Give me two years with Creed before I'm going to start to be concerned. Like Bob said, this organization clearly saw something in him. Otherwise, they're not going to give this 18-year-old kid over a million dollars. I'm sure there's a 22-year-old college bat that they would have loved to draft and stuck in Aberdeen's outfield uh, last year if they really wanted to. But uh, when you look at the other high school selections this organization has made, I think that also gives Creed some some leeway here as well. Look at how well Carter Bomber's done in Delmarva coming off Tommy John surgery. Kobe Mayo, uh, they're hitting on these high school picks so far early on in their careers. A lot of ways to go here. I will admit that, but uh, 
showing high school picks with a lot of promise. So just let Creed set win. I think he'll be okay. And it's just going to take longer. And Nick, you get the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. It's a much different process with catchers. Um, this is, it's a much different experience than what Gunnar Henderson had to go through when he got to Delmarville last year or what Kobe Mayo had to go through when he got there last summer. Catchers, you know, kind of by nature take a little bit longer to develop. And you add in the fact that Willems is this young right out of high school. And like you said, they're not grooming him to move him to first base or the outfield or be a full-time DH right now. They're grooming him to catch and catch every day and deal with a, you know, like, like you said, a challenging situation with the pitching staff, a lot of movement there this year. So hasn't had the opportunity to maybe catch the same guys consistently. So I think Willems is going to be fine in the long run. You got to give him a little bit of leeway because it's a tough process for catchers. When you have the older guys too, like Drew Robb, Adley Rutschman, with the praise that they rained out on, on Creed, that's comforting too uh, to know that as well. And I mean, hey, if catching doesn't work out, like can't the guy throw like 95 miles an hour off the mound? So I mean, maybe you got a two-way player there with Creed as well. That he's got a strong enough arm, and we've seen it behind the plate this year as well. Uh, there are going to be options there with Creed too if catching doesn't happen to work out in the long run. And kind of like with what. Um... Oh, geez. What was his name? The Baseball America guy that was a little negative that we had on the show. Like he said about Samuel Basayo, uh, in six years, he'll be 24, the same age as Adley Rutschman is now. So same with Creed Willems. So, yeah, let's give him some leeway. Give him some time to develop physically and skill-wise. And, uh, yeah, he could be here in five years and still be in double-A and still be perfectly, like, normal development path. That's mind-blowing. Six years and he'll still be 24 years old. Wow. I'll be 45 and bald. Next I'll question. I'll probably be dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, on that pleasant note, um, <laughs> we'll uh, wrap up this week's episode of On the Birds. We will be back next week at a different time. Uh, we'll observe the 4th of July holiday on Monday and then be back with our main show the same time Tuesday night with our mid-season roundup. In the meantime, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Birds. Check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. For all the Raven, latest Ravens, Orioles, college sports coverage, and more, Bob and Nick both have recent pieces on the site that you should definitely read. And be sure to hop on the message board and join the discussion with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors to BSL. Thank you to Matt Porty-Salty for appearing on tonight's episode. Uh, for Bob Phelan, Nick Stevens, and Zach Svedden, uh, this is Zach Svedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.